The second paper in this panel is by Simon Pauley of CIS UCL. The paper is entitled More History from the Side, Researching Social History of Medicine of the Late Imperial and Early Soviet Era. So um, I should begin by explaining the title, which is borrowed from um, the late Richard Stites in the preface to his book Revolutionary Dreams, which is about the culture of utopianism in the Russian Revolution. Um, he described his project as a history not from above or below, um, but from the side. And reflecting on his diverse and eclectic source base, he pointed out that one can hardly ask a librarian or an archivist for the files on gesture, revolutionary space, or lifestyles. Quite so. So um, that seemed kind of appropriate as I was thinking about um, my own research, which I will briefly explain before telling you about um, how it went. Um, my thesis is about a disease called neurasthenia, which is a form of nervous illness which is caused by the unprecedented stress and pressure of life in the modern world. Um, it's sort of disappeared now and fallen into categories like depression or post-traumatic stress and some other things, but it was a big deal all, all across Europe at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. Um, it particularly affected professionals, um, white-collar men in particular, whose jobs involved um, involved a lot of uh, mental work but no physical exertion and this was a strain on their nervous energy or so doctors believed. Um, the symptoms included uh, sexual impotence, um, general kind of fatigue, depression, nervous tics, um, fears, paranoia, phobias, all kinds of things. Um, young people were also thought to be particularly vulnerable. Um, uh, in particular in relation to the changing environment of schools where they were doing more exams and not doing enough physical exercise and things like that. So again, taxing the mind too much um, and neglecting the body and this taxed the nerves, so they believed. Okay, so using this disease as a point of focus, neurasthenia, my project examines the relationship between state policy, mass culture, and ideas about health and illness. Um, it, con it links concern about neurasthenia and nervous illnesses to the development of physical culture and the efforts of the state and of individuals to improve health. So state efforts to improve the health of society as a whole, and also individuals' efforts to make themselves more healthy. All of this is contextualized within what you might call the advent of modernity, the emergence of a consumer culture, the radical transformation of gender identities, a rapidly industrialising economy and changing work practices, and after 1917, the culture of revolution and efforts to build socialism. Um, so my thesis is going to have sections covering mass culture, issues around gender and identity, the vulnerability of youth to nervous illness and what could be done to prevent it by improving their physical fitness and the strength of their will, um, and also nervous illness amongst soldiers um, who got nervous illnesses from traumatic stress, or what in Britain was called shell shock, um, and also the development of physical culture and leisure culture. Okay, so as you can see from what I've said, the topic is quite expansive. Um, it covers a reasonably long time frame, going from maybe around 1890 up to about 1930, um, and 
quite a wide range of issues, clearly. And this was probably the biggest potential pitfall for my research, just being overwhelmed by the range of associations that this disease took on, um, which opened up to enormous amounts of potential sources. So what I needed to do um, was to try and manage that so that I could be comprehensive in the way that I collected my sources um, without getting overwhelmed by the whole thing. Okay. So my source base includes specialist medical publications, popular publications on medicine, advice literature, pharmaceutical advertisements, popular publications on sport and physical culture, popular literature and literary criticism, that's all published stuff, and archival sources include files from the People's Commissariat of Public Health, um, a committee for the assistance of war veterans, records of numerous psychiatric hospitals and clinics, records of a pre-revolutionary committee for popular enlightenment, and um, even the Red Army Political Control Commission, which I'll say something about briefly in a moment. Um, it's probably true for any topic that you have that it's impossible to be absolutely comprehensive in your coverage of the sources, but that's perhaps especially true for topics in social and cultural history. And it was certainly the case for me, given the range of topics on which my project touches. So it quickly became clear to me that it would be difficult to cover any particular issue comprehensively. What I needed to get was a reasonably representative selection of sources on each particular issue to give me enough um, to write something substantial in my thesis. It was clearly going to be impossible to cover absolutely everything. Um, this is made more difficult by the practical difficulties of working in Russia, especially of working in archives. Okay, this is a banal point, but it's an important one. If it takes two or three working days for files to be delivered after you've requested them, then you need to be working on something else while you're waiting, because otherwise you're just wasting your time. Um, so the importance here is that that meant that I was working in a completely different way from what I'd ever done before doing research. I've been used to working in libraries where I can just go and pick something off the shelf or maybe order it and get it an hour later. Um, so what it means basically is that you need to have multiple lines of inquiry running simultaneously. Um, and I think people have mentioned how techniques for managing that. Um, but it's something you need to be aware of, and as with many things about doing research in Russia, the better you plan it at the beginning, the easier it's going to be for you um, as you actually go through. Um, the abundance of sources raised another issue, which is that when you find um, a big cache of sources on a particular topic, it's tempting to get quite stuck into them. Um, I think it's quite easy to end up spending quite a lot of time on a particular set of sources without necessarily thinking too hard about how much of it you're actually going to draw on when you come to write up your work. So for this reason, I think it's important to keep thinking about your thesis as a whole while you're doing your research. What kinds of arguments you're ultimately going to want to make, how they're going to be documented, how it's all going to fit together. In that way, um, you can modify your research strategies as you go along. Um, I sometimes found this a difficult and frustrating thing to do. Occasionally I felt as though I was drowning in a sea of source material and unsure of how I would ever form a coherent <coughs> argument out of it. But I think if you're sort of getting that feeling and feeling a bit down about it, then the most important thing to do is to form a clear idea of your priorities. Um, and that means that you can go and work and feel a bit better that you're getting on with something that's going to take you in a useful direction. 
Okay. Um, so the main surprises um, about the archives in particular that I encountered in Russia. Um, the first one was how sparse the records of a particular institution could be, or how unhelpful they could be. Um, before I left for Russia, in Putyevedetely, um, the finding aids, which you can find in libraries or on the internet, um, I'd established that there were entire fonds in municipal Moscow archives relating to hospitals, clinics, and sanatoria that were dedicated to treating patients with nervous illnesses. So I went to Moscow fully expecting to find a wealth of relevant and revealing documents about patients, diagnoses, courses of treatment, and so on and so on. What I actually found were annual financial reports and some brief summaries of how many patients had been treated in a particular year. Um, a bit of a disappointment, you might say. Um, so that's something to kind of consider. Think about why these archival collections were put together in the first place. What was their function? Um, and then that might help you to guess at um, what's actually going to be in them. Although, of course, until you go there and look, you will never know. Um, a second surprise for me, I kind of made the assumption that local or municipal archives would have more detail and be closer to the ground. So if it's dealing with just a particular area or a particular institution, then you're going to get more detail on its day-to-day -day operation. But I found that that's not necessarily true. And I was quite surprised by what I found in central archives of central administrative bodies. Often you can find out quite a lot of revealing information about the day-to-day -day operation of a hospital or clinic or whatever it might be um, from the central archives. One of the best sources of evidence regarding individuals and individual attitudes are petitions or requests um, that have been written by people you know, asking to be admitted for a clinic for treatment and explaining why they are um, worthy people dedicated to the revolution, fought in the Civil War and all that kind of stuff. And often people address these to central authorities who might then have passed them on to individual institutions. So I found quite a lot of this stuff in central archives, uh, somewhat to my surprise. Um, now clearly that's not always going to apply, and local archives can be gold mines for certain kinds of issues. It just happened that they weren't for me. Um, but I guess the point is really that you never know what you might find, and you need to be open to working in a variety of places to see what you might get. Um, so the third thing that I guess I had an idea about before I went, but I didn't quite realize the extent of it may be, as I kind of mentioned, given that archives are often dedicated to administrative records, richer material can often be found in published sources. And I think that's particularly true of medical history, where something that surprised me was that published material and conference proceedings are often excellent sources. I was amazed sometimes at the level of detail and candor that could be found in published reports about things like the operation of a clinic or a hospital. Um, given that patient records are, at least as far as I can see and as far as other people have said, almost impossible to come by for the, um, for the early Soviet period and the late imperial period, published material in specialist medical journals is often the only source that you'll get of individual case histories, which can tell you quite a lot sometimes. So um, I don't want to repeat too much of what's been said already, but somebody asked about getting started. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that I made in terms of my preparation was that I didn't use existing scholarship um, 
in the right kind of way. Luckily, I was able to do something about this in Moscow. If you find yourself in Moscow and you want some English language secondary material, there is some in the Leninka, um, but there is also a fair bit in the German Historical Institute, which is a bit of a surprise, um, given that it's called the German Historical Institute, but they've got quite a lot of good stuff on Russian history there. Okay. Um, and the point about secondary material is, obviously, you know, I'd read stuff related to my topic um, to put into my literature review before I went to do research. But what I found was that actually um, looking at scholarship that wasn't necessarily um, exactly relevant in terms of its arguments to my work, I still might find sources that other people have used which could give me really good stuff. Okay? <coughs> Um, and it's about looking at the books in a different way. You don't necessarily need to open them and see what the argument is going to be about. Just flip straight to the bibliography, see what Fondi they've used, see what archives they've, they've used. Um, these days people are getting used to giving more and more information about the Fonds, the Opusi and the Diela that they're using and hopefully um, they might indicate something that could be really useful to you, even if what they're interested in is really something quite different. Um, from what you're interested in, or if they're interpreting it in a different way. So um, that was important. How much time have I got there? Five minutes. Um, okay, so I think I'm just going to say a couple of other like practical things which I think are helpful to know before you get there. Um, when you go into an archive and start reading through Opusy and start identifying files, Diala, that you think are going to be useful, write down the title of the Diela, okay? Because on the request forms, at least in all the archives that I used, I think, they want you to write down the title of the Diela as it's written in the office in order for you to be able to actually order it, okay? So don't just write down Office 13, Diela 241. Write down the title as well if you think it's something you want to use because you're going to need that when you come to actually order the file. Um, I didn't realize that in the beginning, and I had to reorder Opusy and look through them again, which again is obviously a waste of time. Um, sorry. Handwriting has been mentioned. To be honest, it's something I didn't really um, think about, although I certainly should have. Um, the petitions and requests that I was talking about, um, which have been such a good source of individual attitudes for me, um, are pretty much always handwritten. Now now and again, um, you'll find that some diligent secretary has typed it up for you. Um, you'll turn the page, and there it will be nicely typed up, and that's wonderful. But obviously, not always. Um, so if you've got one of them, it's handwritten, well, you want to be able to read it. Um, another thing is for anybody working in Ragia, which is the um, Russian State Historical Archive in St. Petersburg, the main central archive for um, the pre-revolutionary period. Um, they've got a lovely new building, computers everywhere, um, and you think um, dig digitized Opusy, but what they've actually done is digitally scanned the original handwritten Opusy. So you come in, log onto the computer, and then you've got a handwritten document in front of you that you have to decipher. Um, this isn't something that you want to just confront when you get to the archive. Um, you want to be prepared for it before you go. I'm just going to finish by saying, when you go to your first archive, I think it's, it's good 
if you have an idea of at least a fond you want to begin with. Because you can go in, you can say, okay, these are the opposite that I want to look at. Note down the names of some DL that you want to look at. You can feel like immediately you're getting on with something and you're going to give the archivists an idea that you have some idea what you're doing, um, <laughs> that you're serious. And I think that, you know, first impressions will make a difference. Obviously, the longer you work somewhere, um, the archivists will get used to you and sort of uh, start being maybe a bit nicer to you. Um, but if you can go in there, look like you know what you're doing, right? Okay, this is the opposite I want to look at. I'm going to write down the names of some DLA and then order them. You can feel like you're actually getting on with something. You have some documents in front of you. And they get the idea that um, you're actually here to work and not, uh, and not muck about. So that's always good. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop now, and then if people want to ask about things, then I guess they can. Thank you.